Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Coming up in episode 104 of the GDPR Weekly Show, we have news that Salesforce and Oracle are to be sued over their involvement with online ad tracking exchanges. We then have news from the UK Appeal Court, which has found that South Wales Police use of automated facial recognition technology has been unlawful. We then have news that Ofqual is to be investigated by the ICO here in the UK over its use of exam grade calculation algorithms. It's not often that it's the information commissioner herself who's making the news, but that's certainly the case this week when it was discovered that the UK information commissioner, Elizabeth Denham, has been working from her home in Canada during the COVID outbreak rather than her home in London. So we bring you the details. We then have news of a new COVID-19 tracking app from Moorish.com. And then news that the Office of Traffic Commissioners may be breaching GDPR by publicising OTC driver conduct hearing outcomes, including personal details of the drivers involved. We then look at the findings from the IBM Annual Cost of a Data Breach Report. News that Instagram has retained data even after users have deleted it from their own accounts and so is potentially in breach of GDPR. We have news that the Bletchley Park Trust has confirmed that it was affected by the Blackboard's data breach. We're then across to America where Walgreens Pharmacy is apologising after looters stole paper prescriptions from their branches which has resulted in a data breach. 2020's been a bad year for the whole world but especially for Canon and we detail why that the case. And then finally this week, we look at the effect of the SREMS 2 ruling on the transfer of genetic data, which of course can be so useful itself in the fight against diseases like COVID-19. So a good mix of articles for you there this week. We hope you find them useful and informative. As always, if you have any feedback for us, please email feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. Please be sure that we do read every single piece of feedback we receive. But unfortunately, due to the volume we receive, we're not able to reply to each piece of feedback individually. But wherever possible, we do take your suggestions and incorporate them into future editions of the GDPR Weekly Show. So we begin this week with news that perhaps should remind organisations that it's not just penalties from the ICO or your country's equivalent that you need to worry about but actually action being taken by consumers, members of the public who've been affected by things that you're doing which are breaches of GDPR. And the example this week that's come to the fore on that is Oracle and Salesforce being sued over online ad tracking. Class actions have been filed in Amsterdam and in London accusing Oracle and Salesforce of breaching GDPR in their processing and sharing of personal data to sell online advertising. This will obviously set a precedent if Oracle and Salesforce are found to have collected data by third-party cookies to process and share in order to sell targeted online advertising and whether the court is satisfied that that is a breach of the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR. Both cases are being brought by the Privacy Collective, a non-profit foundation set up for the purpose and they centre on the use of third-party cookies to support dynamic ad pricing for targeted online advertising. The Privacy Collective said that Oracle and Salesforce were just two of a great many companies using cookies to track, monitor and collect the personal data of internet users and share it in a process called real-time bidding. 
Real-time bidding is a behind-the-scenes auction in which consumers' data is sold to advertisers, which then use these profiles to tailor ads that many people perceive follow them from website to website, even if they've never expressed an interest in the product for sale. The data typically collected to support this practice includes people's interests, their locations, income, relationship status, gender and or sexual orientation, age and education. This lawsuit claims that the collection and sharing of this data by Oracle and Salesforce is being done without clear consent and therefore goes against GDPR and in fact has been in breach of the GDPR since it came into force. Also, the directives say, Oracle's and Salesforce's participation in the process of real-time bidding means it's essentially impossible for now either of them to provide adequate information and obtain the needed consent, and also means that they lose control of the information to third-party ad companies that use their platforms. Rebecca Rumble, a class representative and attainment in England and Wales, said everyone who has ever used the internet is at risk from this technology. It may be largely hidden, but it is far from harmless. She went on to say, If data collected from internet use is not adequately controlled, it can be used to facilitate highly targeted marketing that may expose vulnerable minors to unsuitable content, fuel unhealthy habits such as online gambling, or prey on other other addictions. By supporting this action, internet users in England and Wales can do their bit to begin to hold these firms to account and make the internet a safer and more regulated place. The collective says the claims could exceed 10 billion euros as it could potentially unite millions of claimants who have visited some of the world's most prominent websites including Spotify, Compare the Market, Reddit, Dropbox, Ikea, Booking.com, Thesaurus.com, Urban Dictionary, The Student Room, Rotten Tomatoes, IMDb, BBC Good Foods, Matalan, Pretty Little Thing, Debenhams, Read.co.uk, Barclaycard.com and Amazon. The Dutch action will be the largest ever class action in the Netherlands over GDPR and is being led by the Amsterdam-based law firm Bureau Brandeis. The case to be filed in England and Wales in September 2020 will be led by City of London law firm Cadwallader. Melis Akina, a partner at Cadwallader, said thousands of organisations are processing billions of bid requests each week with at best inconsistent application of adequate technical and organisational measures to secure the data and with little or no consideration as to the requirements of data protection law about international transfers of personal data. GDPR gives us the tool to assert individuals' rights. The class actions mean we can aggregate the harm done. Bureau Brand A lead lawyer Christian Alberdink-Thim added, Your data is being sold off in real time to the highest bidder in a flagrant violation of EU data protection regulations. This ad targeting technology is insidious in that most people are unaware of its impact or the violations of privacy and data rights it entails. Within this ad tech environment, Oracle and Salesforce perform activities that violate European privacy rules on a daily basis, but this is the first time they are being held to account. These cases will draw attention to astronomical profits being made from people's personal information and the risks to individuals and society of this lack of accountability. For Oracle, their executive vice president and general counsel, Dorian Daly, said the Privacy Collective knowingly filed a meritless action based on deliberate misinterpretations of the fact. As Oracle previously informed the Privacy Collective, Oracle has no direct role in the real-time bidding process, has a minimal data footprint in the EU and has a comprehensive GDPR compliance programme. Despite Oracle's fulsome explanation, the Privacy Collective has decided to pursue its shakedown through litigation filed in bad faith. Oracle will vigorously defend against these baseless claims. A Salesforce spokesman said, 
at Salesforce, trust is our number one value and nothing is more important to us than the privacy and security of our corporate customers' data. We design and build our services with privacy at the forefront, providing our corporate customers with tools to help them comply with their own obligations under applicable privacy laws, including GDPR, to preserve the privacy rights of their own customers. Salesforce and another data management platform provider have received a privacy-related complaint from a Dutch group called the Privacy Collective. The claim applies to the Salesforce Audience Studio service and does not relate to any other Salesforce service. Salesforce disagrees with the allegations and intends to demonstrate they are without merit. The Salesforce spokesperson added, Our comprehensive privacy program provides tools to help our customers preserve the privacy rights of their own customers. Now, this is obviously quite a fundamental case if it's found by the court that there is this issue with programmatic advertising. And it's something we will be keeping a close eye on here at the GDPR Weekly Show. And when we have any update from the talk, then we will bring that to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Keep up to date with the latest news in and around the world. There was an important action in the UK courts this week when the Court of Appeal ruled that the use of automatic facial recognition technology by South Wales Police was unlawful. Following an ongoing legal challenge brought by Ed Bridges and the civil rights group Liberty, Mr. Bridges' face was scanned while he was Christmas shopping in Cardiff in 2017 and at a peaceful anti arms protest outside the city's Motorpoint Arena in 2018. He claimed that being identified by automatic facial recognition had caused him distress. Upon taking the issue to court, Bridges said it breached his human rights when his biometric data was analysed without his knowledge or consent. The court upheld three of the five points raised but also found its use was proportionate interference with human rights. The ruling said there was no clear guidance on where automatic facial recognition locate could be used and who could be put on the watch list. It said as a result, a data protection impact assessment was deficient and the force did not take reasonable steps to find out if the software had a racial or gender bias. Surveillance Camera Commissioner Tony Porter said, I have repeatedly called for open debate from all sides on this very important issue. If there is to be an ethical and evolutionary process for the legitimate use of automated facial recognition technology by the state, then it is essential that the public have trust in the technology, its legal and regulated controls, and the honesty of endeavour by the police themselves. The Court of Appeal case, its submissions and findings are a key element of that evolutionary process. The spirit in which all parties contributed to these important appeal proceedings is to their credit, and the Court rightly acknowledges this. I was particularly encouraged by the approach of these proceedings by South Wales Police, who have worked so hard to be transparent and ethical in their approach to use automatic facial recognition technology in this pilot phase. Doubtless, the learning from this appeal process will be valuable to them as well as other parties. Liberty has repeatedly claimed that there are no legal constraints on using automatic facial recognition, saying in court that if everyone was stopped and asked for their personal information on the way into a stadium, people would feel uncomfortable. I think it has to be said, of course, that Liberty started this action prior to COVID-19 because now, obviously, it's becoming much more common when we walk into anywhere that we're being asked for our contact details. South Wales Police has been developing the use of technology since 2015, but it's not the only force to face scrutiny over its use. In September last year, a group of politicians and campaigners argued that the police and companies in the UK must stop using live facial recognition for public surveillance. This board reports that the Kings Cross estate was using facial recognition technology without telling the public, with both the Metropolitan Police and the British Transport Police having supplied the company with images for their database. From our perspective, I agree that automatic facial recognition has its place to play in law enforcement, but it is 
obvious from this case that it is crucial how that process is managed and that it's only used where it's really required. We're waiting to receive the full text of the judgment from the court in this case, but once we have that and we've had a chance to analyse it, we will bring you an update in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. What's up, Isabella? I'm fed up. I wish I had a new job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal.org. We help people find jobs. Great. I will try it now. Anyone in the UK this week will be aware of the controversy which has come about from the automatic algorithms being used to calculate exam grades for people who've taken their A-levels in England and Wales and the equivalent in Scotland. And now the ICO, the Information Commission, has got involved and says it is engaged with its regulator Ofqual after its use of an algorithm to calculate the aid grades backfired. The Information Commission's office, the ICO, said it's monitoring the developing scandal around the downgrading of almost 40% of A-level results in England and Wales. And, of course, they're watching very nervously here to see what happens to the GCSE results when they come out this week. The results were calculated by an algorithm developed by exams regulator Ofqual in place of exams cancelled because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The mass downgrading has been controversial and has seen thousands of students miss out on places at their desired universities, with many schools reporting dramatically lower results than in previous years. Although, it has to be said, the exams body themselves would say that the overall trend is still upward. The Equalities and Human Rights Commission has made a public intervention after it emerged that the algorithm treated private school pupils better than those from disadvantaged backgrounds, and there were also mounting calls for Education Secretary Gavin Williamson to quit his post. An ICO spokesperson said, We understand how important A-level results and other qualifications are to students across the country. When so much is at stake, it's especially important that their personal data is used fairly and transparently. We have been engaging with Ofqual to understand how it has responded to the exceptional circumstances posed by the COVID-19 pandemic and we will continue to discuss any concerns that may arise following the publication of exam results. GDPR places strict restrictions on organisations making solely automated decisions that have a legal and similar significant effect on individuals. The law also requires the processing to be fair even where decisions are not automated. Ofqual has stated that automated decision-making does not take place when the standardisation model is applied and that teachers and exam board officers are involved in decisions on calculated grades. Anyone with any concerns about how their data has been handled should raise those concerns with the exam board first, then report to Ofqual if they're not satisfied. Spokesperson added the ICO will continue to monitor the situation and engage with Ofqual. Under GDPR, students have a right to request information about their performance, which may include their teachers' assessments, written comments about their provisional grade and or rank order and past performance records. However, they do not have a right of access to any information they've recorded themselves, which means they cannot get copies of their answers from mock exams, assignments or other assessments. Since the results have been announced, the organisation to which the student makes a request, that is to say their school or sixth form college, must respond to their request within 30 days. More information on rights of access to this information and how to make a subject access request can be found on the ICO's website at ico.org.uk. From our perspective, I think while everyone appreciates the pressure which the exam boards and Ofqual are under to try and produce realistic results when students aren't sitting in the exam they would normally sit, is of course difficult. But if decisions have been made based on social class rather than academic achievement then that is clearly wrong now 
in the real world, of course, in any exams, there will always be winners and losers. That's just the way the exam system works. And at least the government has given the students a triple lock by saying either they can use these exam results, they can use their mock exam results to determine their grade, or they can retake the exams in October. And also, it's just been announced in the last 24 hours that for any stall that wishes to appeal, or any individual wishes to appeal, the government will undertake to meet the costs of that appeal, so no one will be disenfranchised from appealing solely because they can't afford it. I suspect we'll be returning to this issue in next week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show because the exam results problem is going to rumble on here in the UK. This is an important coronavirus update. It emerged this week that Elizabeth Denham, the UK Information Commissioner, has been working during COVID-19 from her home in Canada rather than her home in London. The news was greeted with fury from senior figures in the UK's data protection community who accused Information Commissioner Elizabeth Denham of abandoning her post at a moment when data issues are most central. Tech policy analyst Heather Burns wrote on Twitter... We are in a national crisis and she's abandoned her post. She must resign. Data protection consultant Pat Walsh said, I'm taken back by this revelation. We need urgent change at the ICO. The news that Miss Denham, who is Canadian, is working in the Canadian Pacific time zone emerged in a Freedom of Information request sent to the Information Commissioner's Office. It asked whether Ms Denham was working the same hours as her team. In response, the ICO said she works the hours required to perform the functions of her role and attend all necessary meetings and engagements, irrespective of any time difference. The ICO confirmed that Ms. Denham was not on a leave of absence and is fulfilling all aspects of her role, and that the Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sport was aware of the arrangement. An ICO spokesperson told Sky News that all staff had worked from home since the start of the pandemic. The spokesperson said Ms. Denham worked full-time from her home in London from the start of lockdown, and has continued to work full-time from her home in Canada from the 13th of June onwards. Ms Denham is due to return to work from her home in the UK from the 7th of September. Remote working has become much more common since the start of the pandemic, but news that Ms Denham is working in Canada has raised questions about how possible it is to lead such a large organisation from that distance. If we receive any further update on this from the ICO, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Helping you get through this COVID-19 period. Mask up and stay safe, everybody. Software developers in Greater Manchester have launched a new COVID-19 track and trace app for independent businesses. Altrincham-based Moorish has created the technology hope to help firms record visitors to their venue without the need for any paperwork. It works by stores, restaurants and coffee shops being given a QR code to display in store, which was to simply scan into their smartphone. If a business receives a test and trace request from the NHS, Morris will then pass on customers' names and email addresses to help with the fight against COVID-19. One of the first customers for the app has been Fitzwilliam & Hughes, a coffee shop business with venues in Rotherham, Sheffield and Leeds. Cassie Bruce, co-founder at Morris.com, a community-based loyalty app for independent businesses, said, Our developers have been working flat out to produce this feature. Businesses are telling us they're finding manual paperwork hard to cope with and their records have to be GDPR compliant too. We're taking that worry and work away from them. Mark Casson from Fitzwilliam and Hughes said, Using track and trace via Morris has helped our business save time. With just one simple scan it's sorted, it's a no-brainer. 
If you own or operate a cafe, restaurant, shop or other venue that can make use of this application, you can find more details at more-ish.com. We should state, as always, that we at the GDP Weekly Show have received no payment or other incentive for this article. And now, the rest of this week's news. A row is brewing here in the UK this week over a decision by the Office of the Traffic Commissioner, the OTC, to publish the outcomes of driver conduct hearings, which not just include the outcome of the case, but also give a lot of details about the driver, including the driver's full name, their date of birth, their postcode, and the date of the hearing. The OTC announced in June that it has started publishing the outcomes of hearings, and it followed widespread approval for this information in responses to a consultation in 2019. At the time, it said that traffic commissioners were complying with data protection rules. Publishing this information will make it easier for operators to find out if a driver has been subject to regulatory action, it said. This will help them to ensure that they do not use drivers who have not declared any action taken by a traffic commissioner against their vocational entitlement to their employers. The traffic commissioners have ensured they comply with data protection principles when publishing this data. So far, the names and details of more than 100 drivers have been published alongside the traffic commissioner's decision. However, a lawyer, Jonathan Backhouse, a director at Backhouse Jones, has said sooner or later a professional driver would sue under GDPR for what he is alleging is the unlawful disclosure of this information. Mr Backhouse said it sounds to be a serious GDPR breach because they are not supposed to be public hearings. For the Office of the Traffic Commissioners, a spokeswoman said the industry had been requesting driver conduct hearing information for some time to reduce the risk that drivers who are subject to action that affects their legal right to drive fail to advise their employer and continue to drive. She said this is an important road safety consideration. Although sections 113 and 116 of the 1988 Act are silent on the process for driver conduct hearings, traffic commissioners seek to regulate in an open and transparent manner. When consulting on changes to the statutory document in 2019, the traffic commissioners requested feedback on the value of making the process more transparent, and all respondents agreed the value of that principle would always be fully considered as part of the consultation exercise. Traffic commissioners considered the law and obtained appropriate advice. The OTC spokeswoman added... Furthermore, we understand the need for some legal representatives to publicise their practices, but it's the Commissioner's considered opinion that it is not the appropriate form for legal argument, particularly where the provision is fully compliant and answers the needs of operators and drivers. We have approached the ICO for their view on this, but we've not yet heard back from them, so when we do, we'll bring you that update in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. The annual cost of a data breach report produced by IBM Security has come out this week and we've had a chance to study it and draw out from it our top 10 conclusions of things that we've learned from the report. The first is that the average cost of a data breach for 2020 was $3.86 million. That's taking into account all costs. So that's, you know, cost of loss of business, cost of penalties, cost of compensation to people affected by the data breach. So average cost, $3.86 million. Perhaps quite scarily, the second thing it discovered was that businesses are taking an average of 280 days to identify and remediate a data breach. Our third finding was that compromised credentials and cloud misconfiguration are the most common way to access a network. 
fourth thing we found was that attackers who were financially motivated were the most common, but not the most expensive, which was deemed to be nation-state level attackers with a cost of $4.3 million per breach. The fifth finding of the report was that 80% of breaches included some sort of personally identifiable information, PII, which has an average cost of $150 per record. Finding number six from the report was that healthcare is the most expensive industry for a data breach, which is largely because, of course, medical data is highly sensitive data. Seventh finding of the report was that the impact of COVID-19 was also apparent in breach responses. 76% of the report respondents said remote work would increase the time to identify and contain a data breach. But this was a temporary setback as organisations shift to use new tools and models of working. The eighth finding of the report was that there was a 27% reduction in time to identify a data breach when using automation, leading to cost savings of $3.5 million. The ninth finding of the report was that having an incident response plan resulted in an average cost saving of $1.12 million by containing the data breach in under 200 days. The final finding of the report, the tenth finding, was that to reduce the chance of a data breach, it's important that you know what data you have, where it's handled and how. And of course you should have done that already as part of your GDPR preparations, but if you need help with that, then please do reach out to us at helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and one of our specialists would be delighted to talk you through the next steps of how that can be achieved. What's up, Mike? I'm fed up. I wish I had a new job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal Jubal.org. We help people find jobs. Great. I'll try it now. The photo sharing app Instagram has been found to retain people's photos and private direct messages on its server even after users had removed them. The Facebook-owned service acknowledged the slip-up and awarded a security researcher $6,000 for finding the bug. Researcher Sal Gapakarol discovered the vulnerability when he downloaded his data last year from the photo-sharing app. The data included photos and private messages that he'd previously deleted, alerting him to a problem, he said. Instagram didn't delete my data even when I deleted it from my end. When he realised this, he reported the bug to Instagram in October 2019 through its bug bounty programme. He said Instagram fixed the bug earlier this month. The bug was a feature that Instagram launched in 2018 in response to GDPR, which requires any companies operating in Europe to notify the authorities within 72 hours of confirming a data breach or face stiff financial penalties. GDPR, which came into effect on May 25th, 2018, has a data portability component requiring companies to give people access to their data. Instagram's feature allowing people to download their data tamed on the heels of its parent company, Facebook, providing a similar feature for its platform. This flaw is not the first time that Instagram has been found saving people's data even after they saw that it had been deleted. Last year, security researcher Karen Saini reported that the company keeps direct messages for years, even if people delete them from their feed. He also found that Instagram sent data from and to accounts that had been deactivated or suspended. A spokesperson from Instagram confirmed the bug and its fix and said there had been no evidence of abuse of vulnerability. We asked the spokesperson about the other alleged instances where Instagram was retaining data and they said they weren't in a position to comment at this time. The Bletchley Park Trust confirmed this week that it had been involved in the Blackboard data breach which we've mentioned in the last few episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show and of course for those of you who may be new listeners just to say that Blackboard were the target of a major data breach, which they resolved by paying a ransom to the cyber criminals who performed the breach. And that in itself, of course, the payment of the ransom has been a controversial decision. 
Bletchley Park, of course, is where the famous Enigma code encryption algorithm was broken during the Second World War. This week, Bletchley Park Trust officials have written to everybody on their mailing list to inform them about what has happened. A statement released by the park said, We were recently notified by Blackboard, one of our software suppliers, that they had suffered a data breach due to a ransomware attack on their own system. Unfortunately, a significant number of universities and charities have been affected by this issue, and this list includes the Bletchley Park Trust. This breach involved records containing personal information which it may include one or more data fields such as names, titles, dates of birth, email addresses, donation history, mailing or e-newsletter list preference, event attendance or membership depending on data subjects engagement with the Bletchley Park Trust. No financial or bank card details were held on the system, the statement said. It added, the Blackboard cybersecurity team, along with independent forensic experts and law enforcement agencies, successfully stopped the attack and secured the destruction of any data held by the cybercriminal. Blackboard has informed us that it has no reason to believe that any data went beyond the cybercriminal and that the data was deleted after they paid a ransom. The Trust has assured people that their data is now secure. The Trust added, Blackboard have reported this breach to the Information Commissioner's Office and we have also submitted our own report to the ICO and are working with them to ascertain any follow-up action which may be required. We have initiated a review of how and where we store our data and our future relationship with Blackboard. One member of the Trust, whose data was on the park computer, was not happy though. He did not wish to be named, but he said, I believe it's poor form that they're trying to imply that paying the ransom to criminals was somehow a successful containment of the incident by their IT supplier Blackboard. In my view, this is a textbook case of how not to deal with a ransomware attack, and until we condemn such responses, we're going to see a lot more of these attacks. And regular listeners will know that that aligns with our own thoughts, that we personally believe it's never right to pay the ransom to someone in a situation such as this, because you have absolutely no way of being 100% certain that they have destroyed the data that they've stolen. So they could come back again at some point in the future and demand another ransom. And that's always the danger of paying a ransom to data criminals. 365 days of reliable and objective news. We cross to America now, where the personal information of over 72,000 Walgreens customers has been exposed after looters broke into nearly 200 stores and stole prescriptions. Walgreens is America's second largest pharmaceutical chain who contacted their customers in July to disclose the data breach. Walgreens spokesperson Jim Cohn told the Philadelphia Inquirer that 180 Walgreens stores have been looted but declined to state which specific ones. In a statement, Walgreens said, As part of a comprehensive investigation and review of the damage, we learned that there was also limited unauthorised access to certain patient information at some of the damaged locations. Walgreens said that while paper records and field prescriptions were swiped by looters, no financial information or social security numbers belonging to customers were exposed. In a breach notification letter dated July 24th, Walgreens wrote, Sometime between May 26th and June 5th, 2020, Various groups of individuals broke into multiple Walgreens stores and forced entry into the secure pharmacy at select locations, including your preferred Walgreens. Among the many items stolen were certain items containing house-related information, such as field prescriptions waiting for customer pick-up and paper records. Sensitive information exposed in the spate of looting included customer's full name, address, date of birth, age, phone number, email address, balance rewards numbers and photo ID numbers. Vaccination information was also exposed along with prescription details and clinical and house plan information. The letter went on to state, Upon learning of the potential compromise of information, Walgreens promptly took steps to close out and re-enter impacted prescriptions in our system to prevent potential fraud regarding the original prescription. 
Waldron said it was coordinating with local law enforcement where appropriate and had taken steps to reverse insurance claims for any stolen field prescriptions that had already been billed to house plans. By way of compensation, impacted customers were offered one year of credit monitoring free of charge and were given advice on how to obtain the monitor credit reports. Customers were further advised to follow up with their insurance company or care provider for any items that they didn't recognise. It's understood that the data breach may have affected 72,143 Walgreens customers in total. I think this data breach just to show that it's not always data on a computer system which can be affected by a data breach. In this case, it was paper prescriptions. And it is very important, and indeed it's part of GDPR, that you do ensure that your paper records you keep just as securely as you do the records that you keep on your computer. So do think about what you're doing with your paper records overnight, particularly if you're a pharmacy here in the UK, for instance. Are you locking the actual paper prescriptions away at night, or are you just leaving them in a tray on top of the counter ready to be processed tomorrow? Food for thought, perhaps, if you are a pharmacy or associated business here in the UK. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. 2020 has been a year which has presented everyone with problems, not least, of course, because of COVID-19. But one company which most certainly can't wait for 2020 to finish is Canon. Canon are well known for their cameras and other image processing equipment, but what's let them down is their new service called Image.Canon. To do a bit of background, on July the 30th, the service stopped working. It didn't come back up again till the 4th of August. In itself, that may not have been a major problem, but when it came back up, Canon were forced to admit to its customers that it had lost some of their images. Now, this is a huge problem because the worst thing that can happen to a cloud storage company is to lose some of their customers' data. To compound the problem, Canon said it confirmed that the lost data could not be restored. That's a big impact on the reputation of a company like Canon. Because imagine if they were photos taken by a professional photographer of your wedding, a one-off event that the photographer's done everything he can to ensure that the images are safe and Canon has lost them. It's doubly disappointing because everyone recognises that as a concept, image.canon is precisely where the industry needs to go. For those who don't know, the idea behind image.canon is that from a Canon camera, you can upload your photos via Wi-Fi direct to image.canon and it will send them on to your Dropbox account, to your Google Drive, to your Adobe Creative Cloud account. Wherever you want to have those photos, image.canon will send them on. But in this instance, it lost them. However, just as you thought things couldn't get worse, it transpired that these images had not simply been lost, they'd been stolen in a cyber attack from an organisation called Maze. Maze is demanding a ransom for the return of the data and to Canon's credit so far, it's refusing to pay the ransom, but of course that doesn't help those people who've lost their photographs, particularly if they were, as I say, for one-off occasions. It's very early in this scenario, and so we are awaiting further updates from Canon, and as soon as we receive them, we will of course bring them to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Keep up to date with the latest news in and around the world. A new judgment from the Court of Justice of the European Union has profound and wide-ranging implications for the international transfer of genomic data. The sharing of genomic data is essential to unlock the benefits of genomics for research and healthcare. 
Assembling and sharing data from large international studies offers particular value for general research into genomic health and disease from detailed studies of genetic factors driving different forms of cancer to understanding how genetics may influence the risk of common diseases or why people react differently to infectious diseases such as COVID-19. It also allows health professionals around the world to identify and share learning about new and extremely rare genetic conditions that may affect only a handful of people in the whole world. However, the sharing of personal data is subject to legal controls and the EU General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, impacts the sharing of genomic data when it counts as personal data because it relates to an identified individual. Where genomic data constitutes personal data, lawful processing requires a legal basis and may also need other legal mechanisms. Individuals and institutions wishing to participate in international sharing of genomic data therefore need to be aware of their legal duties and in particular the impact of the new SREMS 2 judgment which we've discussed a couple of times in the last few episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show and doubtless we will continue to discuss. One of the issues, of course, with SREMS 2 is that it's made international data transfers between the EU and the US much more difficult with immediate effect, and transfers between the EU and the UK will be similarly affected after the 31st of December, when the UK, of course, will have fully enacted Brexit and left the European Union. Now, none of this is insurmountable, but it does cause problems, and we are continuing to work on a solution for SREMS 2, and finding workarounds which work for our customers, our clients. And if you'd like to be part of our process on that, please do get in touch with us at helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and we'd be delighted to start discussing the options with you. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us and Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. And cut. That's a wrap. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity. Until next time, bye-bye.